Chapter 1 Henry believes he knows exactly when the ninety-four-year-old woman in the neighbouring apartment dies. He hears her turn off. Until now, he has not been able to distinguish her from her appliances. Her washing machine, her vacuum cleaner, her radiators, her television. But the moment she gives up the ghost, he detects the cessation of a noise of which he was not previously aware. A hum, was it? A whir? Impossible to say. There is no word for the sound a life makes. Ah, well, his cleaning woman muses, once word of the death has seeped out. What's one more? Plenty, if you happen to be the one, Henry says. She sidles a walled Irish eye towards his, oblivious to an Englishman's partiality for space between two people not connected by marriage. There we are, then, she says with a shrug and goes on with a dusting. They're all shrugging and dusting round here, not on edge exactly, but fatalistic, waiting to be blown apart. Henry isn't thinking like that, though. Henry is just waiting for himself to die. There's a subtle political difference. Never mind poison gas in the underground. Never mind helicopters crop-dusting the city with anthrax. Henry sees what's coming as an entirely personal catastrophe. Something between him and his maker and no one else. That's always been the trouble with Henry. He's never been able to grasp the larger picture. Rather than remain in his apartment while there is a corpse next door, Henry ventures out. But this is not something Henry normally enjoys doing. Nothing to do with anthrax. Out, in Henry's view, is a madhouse. Historians of social lunacy will confirm that this is literally the case, that the mad have been let out of the asylums and allowed to walk the streets. But Henry doesn't mean that. By mad, nerve-strung Henry means revving when you're stationary and driving with your hand on your horn. Read that sexually if you like, but Henry has in mind incessant honking. He means text messaging the person standing next to you, or being wired up so that you can speak into thin air. Conversing with God is how it looks to Henry, or wearing running shoes when you're not running, or coming up to Henry with a bad face and a dog on a piece of string and asking him for money. Why would Henry give someone with a bad face money? Because of the dog? Because of the string? But there's out, and there's out. And this out, Henry concedes, beats others he's encountered. Still too much revving and honking and similar vehicular hectoring. Inevitable, given the triple parking, which is the custom here. People nipping out of their cars to say hello to other people, who have nipped out of their cars to say hello. And people boxed in by both sorts having heart attacks on their horns. But it's a superior sort of hectoring, and the sports clothes, especially on the elderly, bespeak a greater gentility too, more cricketing and yachting than footballing, due presumably to the proximity of Lords and the boating lake in Regent's Park. As for the bad-faced men with dogs, they rarely venture this far into the comfort zones of NW8. Neither did Henry much before now. Henry isn't from here as aren't many of the people he sees in the street or bumps into in the lift, which accounts for much of the appeal the place has for him. It's better to be a stranger among strangers, Henry reckons, no matter how jumpy everyone is, 
than to be even partially at home among the indigenous. Prior to NW8, Henry had lived postcodeless, and with a semi-permanent headache of the never-quite-settled-anywhere, with one dry foot on the cobblestones of the town, and one wet one in the drains and delfts of a moor so dour, it was a miracle a single flower could find the will to bloom there, and few did. Walkers came and marvelled, but walkers are only ever passing through. As for the natives, Henry's explanation...